I want to ask you a question as we begin tonight. Have you ever inherited anything? Have you ever inherited anything? Now, I don't know about you, but I've, I've thought of this from time to time, and I must confess to you, to my knowledge, I've never inherited anything, right? Uh, my mom and dad are still alive. Uh, my one grandma, believe it or not, uh, is still alive. Uh, she's 94 years old, but she is still alive, still lives on her own. Um, she has sent us support from time to time as we started the church, but I've never inherited anything. Have you ever inherited anything? Uh, did you know that you will? Did you know that you will inherit something? No matter what your earthly parents have, no matter what they possess, whether they are poor as church mice or whether they have a ton, you will inherit something as a believer. And in part, this is what Paul is going to address with us tonight in this section as he continues to flesh this out as a heir, as an heir, as a son, as a child of God. This is significant for us. So last week we looked at our identity as believers and its connection with the truths of the gospel. What I want you to note tonight is this is one of those truths. This is part of our identity. Part of our identity is we are a son, a child. We are an heir. We are an heir through Jesus. It's through faith in Christ that gives us this and and that's it. That's, that's the point. Faith in Jesus gives us this standing, right? And Paul's going to develop this a little, little bit. So what I want you to note with me as we walk through this is, as believers, you and I are children of God by faith. Now, what's also interesting is that makes us one. That makes us one in Christ, which is interesting. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Now remember, Paul's primary concern throughout Galatians is that these believers don't get deceived by a false gospel. What is that false gospel? We already talked about it a moment ago. It is the works of the law, that I have to do some works of the law in order to uh, have a right standing, right relationship with God, right? Paul says, no, that is not true. And he is making arguments and building a case against that throughout. But this is serious to Paul. It is so serious to Paul. As Lil read for us again a moment ago, he begins with, Oh, foolish Galatians. Now, he changes his tone, as we mentioned last week in verse 15, and he says, Brothers and sisters, right? He knows they're believers, but this is serious for Paul. And he is desperate for them to understand the seriousness of this issue. Now, if you recall, as we began chapter 3 four weeks ago, Paul is addressing the core issue of faith alone as the means of salvation. Faith alone saves not works of the law. He then addresses the core problem with the law in verses 10 to 14, we are under a curse. If you think that there's a means by which you can attain right standing with God based on the law, you've missed it. You're actually under a curse because of the law. Why? You can't keep it. Inherently, it's not possible to keep it. And what I want you to observe 
In every single epistle where Paul will address a challenger and they are dealing with this. It happens in Colossians. It happens in Philippians, though certainly not fleshed out like this. It happens in Galatians. Every single time, Paul never gives his opponents credit for keeping the whole law. He never says, I know you guys have done this. No, you haven't done it. You can't do it. That's the problem. So because of that, you're under a curse, right? And last week, we looked from verses 15 to 26 at the unaltered promises made to Abraham. These promises aren't changed. They're not being adjusted because of the law. The law comes 430 years after the promises given to Abraham, and therefore they're not changing. This is a covenant. This is an agreement that's not going to change. You can add, right? But that that core agreement that's not going to be adjusted as we discussed last week. So as Paul continues to develop his argument, the first thing that he points out to us in verses 27 to 29 is this, that you and I are in union with Christ. And interestingly enough, it connects to what we discussed this morning and to one another. Now, many, many times, this is a brief rabbit trail, all right, I'll confess before I start it. Many, many times when we have conflict with a fellow believer, We miss this. We fail to see that we are in union with Christ and with each other. And Paul is going to make that point. Many times in our minds, we're standing for something that is principled and right, and we can't give an inch on it. If we give an inch on it, it somehow will be compromised. Folks, many times our greatest transgression is not giving in on something that you know, uh, it's really a big deal to us. It's the way that we treat one another. That's the bigger issue many times. And we've been talking about that as a church for seven years. And I'll tell you why. Because I'm blown away by that. More and more and more. The more the New Testament I study, the more I'm like, man, this is everywhere. Every, everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere. Throughout our entire New Testament, Jesus is far more concerned with the way that we treat one another than that we get every single thing exactly right in our cultural context. He really is. He really is. And some people would say, that's not true. And I would say, show me that. Every book of our New Testament addresses that issue. Loving one another. Every book. And we've talked about it in almost every one of them because we've gone through them together, right? This is a big deal. So look at what he says again, verse 27. A couple things in this first verse. He says, verse 27, for those of you who were first baptized with Christ. So what are we talking about here? Two things are in view, all right? Two things are in view. First, physical baptism. So some commentators kind of default to that interpretation. But we also have to remember that the idea of being baptized, there is a spiritual aspect to that as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, you will remember this text, I think, when I read it. Paul says to the Corinthian church, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. 
whether we're Jews or Gentiles, whether we're slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. So again, that is a description of spirit baptism or, or spiritually being unified, joined, right? With the body collectively and to Jesus. I think both can apply here. Both a physical baptism and all that that represents and that spiritual aspect, which as you'll see, I think in some respects develops here in a moment. But for sure, what we're talking about is, is being unified, being joined with Christ, baptized into Christ. And then what does he say? Having been clothed, clothed with Christ. Now think this through for a moment. How does he describe our union with Jesus? Like putting on clothes, right? Now, uh, how many of you would say to some extent tonight, you're in union with your clothing? We're thankful that you are. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it'd be bad if that that wasn't the case. If If it wasn't joined to you sufficiently that it stayed on. That, that could be bad, right? Yeah? Are you with me or no? Right? <laughs> Some of you are scaring me here. No, no, that'd be bad, right? That'd be bad. Well, that's the imagery Paul uses to describe the union that we have with Jesus. We're clothed with him. We are putting him on like you would put on in a sense a set of clothes. And that is critical because it describes this relationship that we have. It describes, in some respects, the complete transformation that is supposed to take place as a result of faith in Jesus. When we are clothed with him, we're supposed to think differently, respond differently, talk differently, engage differently. That transformation should be evident Because we're clothed with Christ. So that's part of his call. Now look at the distinctiveness that he gives us in verse 28. So the distinctions in part are done away with. Look at this. He says there's no Jew or Greek. Now how could we describe Jew or Greek? This is an ethnic distinction. There's no more ethnic distinction. And folks, listen to me. We talked about this in Acts earlier, Acts 17, 28. Paul speaking at Athens, and what does he say? Listen, there's one man, and everybody comes from that one man. Every single human on the face of the planet, no matter what color they are, no matter what country they're from, every single one came from one guy. There's one race. Now, in our day, that's not what we're told. But according to the Bible, that is the case. We all come from from one, Adam, right? And truthfully, uh, in the flood, everybody's destroyed except the family of Noah. And so we, again, come from only one guy, Noah, right? And his three sons. So the human race is, is fairly limited in its origin, right? We aren't popping up from all over the place, you know? Um which we, again, could go down a rabbit trail. I will avoid. All right. (laughs) Ethnic. Second, slave or free. Now think of slave or free. What does that describe? Social. So any kind of social distinction is done away with. Right? Number three, 
The third one, male or female. Now, initially you say, oh no, if, if, if this is describing gender, then you know, dis- gender distinctives are gone. No, that, that's not the point of this text. What he is describing there is the idea of any advantage or distinctive that is given to male or female, because they are male or female, that is done away with. Each of these categories is related to distinctives that give an advantage. What happens in Jesus is everybody is level, right? Everybody's level. I'm not better than you and you're not better than me. You're not better than him and you're not better than her, right? This is the nature of being in Jesus. And listen to me, sometimes if we're not careful, that's not how we truly think. That's not how we operate. We don't operate at that level. Now, one of the things that's important with verse 28, and again, what happens with our Bible many times is people will come to a a passage like this, they find that and they say, oh good, this is perfect, this will serve my purpose, and I'll, I'll pull this and make it what I would like it to be. So a couple of clarifications. Number one, in our culture, the perceptions of the Greeks and the Jews often reflected their terrible perception of each other. So think about this. The Greeks literally thank their deities for not making them animals, women, or non-Greeks. That was their perception, right? So in part, that's what Paul is opposing. Jews, Jewish teachers, they would thank God for not making them Gentiles, women, or ignorant people, right? So this is the perception that they had toward one another. And this is part of what Paul is addressing as he writes. This is part of what he's trying to help them get over, right? Because of the gospel, there really is this oneness in Christ, but this oneness with one another. We share this together. Now, one of the things that I want to be careful we understand is this verse in no way is undermining the gender distinctives. Some use it that way. Again, it's pulled from its context and used to uh, defend there is no more gender distinctive. That's not Paul's point. What Paul is prioritizing is that men often had this priority. They had a distinctiveness. They had a distinction above women. Paul's saying, no, no, no. Because of Jesus, that's leveled, right? It doesn't mean that there's not a proper um, structure within the family. It doesn't mean there's not a proper structure within the church. What it means is there aren't second-class citizens, whether male or female. There aren't second-class citizens. And folks, think this through for a minute. In this first-century culture, That was significant. That's a big deal. Now, there were wealthier women. They were kind of, it was kind of becoming in vogue in this culture for them to subvert their husbands, right? So there was that issue. Paul addresses that, I think, in 1 Corinthians. The reality is, though, humanity always messes up God's intention, right? And so I think that's what Paul's addressing. 
Paul's addressing that and he's saying, listen, you don't prioritize yourself above a Jew if you're a, Jew, or a Greek and above a, a Greek if you're a Jew, right? And the same for slave and free and the same for men and women. This is Paul's challenge. So how, how does this happen? How, does, how are these distinctives removed? Look at the end of verse 28. Look what he says. Since you all are one. You are all one in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, we are one. Again, this is not about God removing distinctions that he created us with. What this is about is creating an inclusive family. Right? Does that sound familiar? (laughs) An inclusive family where membership is more highly valued than your position or your status or your ethnicity, right? No, being a part of this is more valuable. And folks, listen to me. We say this, I I say this to you all the time. I say it when we take communion. I say it when we walk through 1 Corinthians 11 again. This is an enormous issue in the first century. You think racial tensions are high today? Try putting Greeks and Jews together in the first century. That's like a bomb. But this is what Paul's addressing. And listen carefully. As the church obeyed, it testified to an outside world. Man, there's something different. That's part of the gospel. That's part of the good news. Jesus can transform the way you think about others. Him, her, them. Right? This is part of the good news. He goes on in verse 29. And he concludes, so if, and if you belong to Christ, then, so if then, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You are from part of his family. You are heirs according to the promise, which is unbelievable. Paul offers this logical statement. You belong to Jesus, then you are a seed. So no longer is there this barrier to participation with God, in God, Because of Jesus, you have the blessings promised to Abraham. What a gift. What a gift. It's given to us through Christ. So our position in Jesus is not based and never will be based on performance or merit. It is solely based on the merit of Jesus. Through his work, through his resurrection, because of his ascension. Our position is always and only based on him. That's it. Right? That's it. Paul goes on, though, and he continues this discussion of errors, and now he gives us this illustration. Now, in some respects, we talked about this a little bit already, but he kind of already hinted at this illustration, I think back in verse 24, chapter 3, right? So now he's going to flesh this illustration out a little bit more. And there's pieces of this, that I don't know about you, but for me, I'm looking at, I'm thinking, what is Paul saying? And part of that is because we have to understand some of these pronouns, right? Some of these pronouns where Paul says, we, you, right? Who is that? Okay. All right. So look again, verse one, Paul says, now, I say that as an heir, or as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he's the owner 
of everything. Initially, as Paul gives this illustration, Paul is doing it to kind of clarify some of what he's already described, but he begins by simply stating the condition of the heir. An heir, while he is a child, isn't truly that different from a slave. Now, is this true in every single extent, to every degree? No, of course not. In every illustration, at some point, it does break down, right? But Paul's point, in essence, is before an heir, a child that is an heir, grows to maturity, he basically functions, interacts as a slave. He's in the home, but he doesn't have any rights. He doesn't have any authority in a sense. He can't make decisions. He can't sell the property. He can't inherit any property, right? He's not mature. He's not ready. That is Paul's point. The child here connotes innocence or simplicity. It's a, it's a condition. It's a state of immaturity. He goes on and he clarifies a little more in verse 2. He says, instead, he's under a guardian or a trustee until the time set by his father. Now, again, we described this a little bit, but first century, you'd have oftentimes a slave uh, in the home. They functioned as almost like a live-in nanny. They just took care of that child until that child was ready to mature enough to kind of manage on their own. And what that meant was this, literally, they went to school with the child. They helped the child with homework. They oversaw the child, even if they had chores, to make sure those chores were done properly. Literally, there was this person overseeing, guarding, protecting to some degree, but also managing. At times, telling the child, no, you can't do that. That's not about, well, they're a slave. But they're telling the heir, no, right? This is, this is Paul's point. This is where we are, he says we. Now, in verse 3, when he says we, who is he describing? I think for me, that was, that was the hardest thing. I'm thinking, what is Paul doing with this illustration? What is he describing for us? And when he says we, I'm assuming he's saying we, me, and you, Galatians, right? What if that's not the we? If that's not the we, it makes a whole lot more sense in my mind. All right. So think of it like this. Verse three, he says, in the same way, we also. What if the we is Paul, I, Paul, and my Jewish brethren? Right. What if we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world? Now, many times as God engages with Israel in the Old Testament, what does he call them? Children, right? He calls them children. And so I think as Paul says in verse 3, there was a point at which we as Jews, as God's people in the Old Testament, we are functioning just like children under a guardian. Who's the guardian? Who, who's the one looking over them? Who's the one saying, no, 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 don't, don't, no, don't do that. I, I know what you're thinking. Don't do that. Who's doing that for them? It's the law. The law is functioning as the guardian, right? And because the law is functioning as the guardian, because they are too immature, the time hasn't come. The appropriate time. The time the father has set, that hasn't come yet. 
So because of that, they're under this umbrella. And because they're under this umbrella, they are actually in slavery to the elements of the world. Now, what is that? Well, literally, it's in bondage. They're in bondage to these elements of the world. And what are those elements? What are we describing? Well, I think in the larger context, we are addressing for sure the elements of the law. One form of these elements is the Mosaic law. Jews were under this form of elementary teachings, while the Gentiles, they were actually under another, but both shared this common condition of being enslaved and under subjection because of these teachings. So here they are. They can't go anywhere. There's nothing changing for them. Why? Because they're under this bondage. They're under this Guardian, this is what Paul's describing. But now Paul shifts, and, and listen carefully to me. This passage that he shifts to, verses 4 to 7, is fascinating for a couple of reasons. If you follow an Advent reading schedule, an Advent calendar, Galatians 4 will come up. Do you know why? Because it's so Christological in its focus. It's talking about the Messiah coming. It's talking about incarnation. It's talking about redemption. It's talking about salvation, right? So we turn to this Christological reality as Paul describes it. It's all about Jesus, but it's really interesting. Paul sums it up so briefly. The language of it in some ways is unique. Paul doesn't talk like this anywhere else. There's actually assumptions that Paul was stating kind of an early Christian liturgical uh, statement that they would make together affirming the truths of Jesus. So it's really, really rich. And yet it's very, very uh, compact, right? It's, it's, It's not a ton. So look at what he says in verse 4. And this is the transition. He transitions now to the right time. And the effect that that's going to have then on Jews and Gentiles. Look at what he says. So when the time came to completion. Well, who decided when the time should come to completion? God. God sent his son. Now note this. That statement is incarnation. Look at the next one. Born of a woman. That statement is about his birth. Some argue uh, that this is describing the virgin birth, though I don't know that we can argue that dogmatically. And truthfully, I don't know that we need to. Uh, Luke states that for us plainly, right? We, we don't have to argue it from every text, but certainly that is, it could be in view. He's born of a woman. He's born under the law. For what purpose? To redeem those. Under the law. What, for what purpose? So that we might receive adoption as sons. All right, now, there's a lot of riches in there, okay? So let's, let's very, very briefly mine them out. Number one, note the timing. The time came to completion. And what that emphasizes is the realization of God's work to bring to fulfillment the saving promises he makes to Abraham. God decided that. God did that. This is God's work. 
So at the appropriate time, God sends his son. God sending his son is a description of the incarnation. It is describing Jesus coming literally in the flesh. Him being born of a woman is describing his humanity. Jesus came as a man. And even more than that, think through for a moment. The manner in which he came, Paul goes on and he says, he came under the law. Well, how did Jesus come? He was born as a Jewish man. He was circumcised on the eighth day as every Jewish male child was. He grew up in a Jewish home. He grew up reading the Torah. He grew up attending the synagogue. Folks, do you remember that in Luke? Luke 4, I think it is. He goes into the synagogue, his synagogue in Nazareth, right? He goes in on the, on the Sabbath to worship. He goes in, they say, hey, you want to read something? He reads from Isaiah. And then he says, today in your hearing, these words are fulfilled. And what do they say? Get out. You're little Yeshua that grew up in Nazareth. We know who you are. How dare you say that the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled when it comes out of your mouth. Get out. And Jesus walks out and says, a prophet has no honor in his own country. And he doesn't go back to Nazareth again. Now think that through. He was a man born under the law, fulfilling the duties, responsibilities, rights, all of it, of the law. Jesus went to Jerusalem and celebrated the feast. We know that because when he was 10, 11, 12, he got left at the temple quizzing the, the priests. And they're saying, how'd you learn so much? You're from Nazareth. They don't know anything. How'd you learn so much? His mom and dad come back and they say, what were you doing? Have you ever seen a mom and dad leave their child in the grocery store and come back and find them? They say, what were you doing? Right? I think we, I think we left one of my brothers at the grocery store once. And, you know, he was little, but it was all his fault. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it was all, all his fault. You know, he wandered off or something. You know, I've told you this before. Uh, I think Jenny's watching at home, so, you know, full confession here. Uh, man, I left Mike at church, I think, twice. You know, every time it was when she was at home with Lacey, you know, sick. And I'd leave him at church, and Mike is the greatest kid in the world. He never had a clue, never knew. Until he was older and I confessed, he never knew. He's standing there talking to the pastor, and they're having a good time. And I come and pick him up, and the pastor, he gets in the car. I pick him up, he says, pastor says, well, now listen, nobody has to know about this. This will be our little secret. I said, I appreciate that, but I'm probably going to go home and confess and just take what's coming to me. <laughs> you know, and I get in the car and Mike is like, man, that was great. I hung out with Pastor for a little while. We had a great conversation about this or this or this. And he tried to turn him into a Patriots fan, which is a heresy all its own. So we've all done it, right? Jesus grew up as a man, as a boy, as a man. For 33 years, sometimes in our minds, we that's a tough one for us to wrap our heads around. But his humanity is significant. Because in his humanity, he can stand in your place and mine. Jesus fulfilled the law in every single 
aspect. And folks, if you recall from our studies through the Gospels together, there are many times he's accused of breaking the law. And do you recall every single time we've looked, it's not Moses' law, it's the Mishnah law. It's the, it's the fence around the law. It's the law we made up to protect the law, right? You broke that one. You broke that one. And sometimes Jesus would even rebut their accusations. Sometimes not, but sometimes he would. Correcting their thinking. Jesus was a man. He lived as a man. He died as a man. And yet, he was fully, completely God. Now, he did all of that for verse 5. Two things. Two things. Two gospel realities that should cause your heart to burst almost with excitement and joy, right? Redemption. Now listen carefully, it's very, very important. If you understand anything about redemption, about redeeming something, the something being redeemed often, at least in my mind, can't do anything about it, right? It's a great little story about a, a little boy. He had this awesome sailboat, and he had a little creek that ran through the backyard of his house. And so he'd run out there and he'd put the boat down and he'd watch it run across the back of the yard. Before it got out of the back, their backyard, he'd grab it up out of the, the water and he'd run back around and he'd do it again. Well, he, he just, he loved doing this and watching that thing sail through the water. Well, one day he put it in on this side and started to track along and his mom said, hey, come here, right? Well, you know, every little boy is so obedient and immediately goes, he's like, mom, wait, wait. No, 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 this is an emergency. You come right now. So he turned, he forgot his boat. And his boat sailed away. And he was heartbroken. Heartbroken over that boat. Well, he thought it was gone. Several weeks later, when they went into town, they looked in the toy store, and right there in the window of the toy store was his boat. He was overjoyed. He walked into the owner of the toy store and said, Hey, you found my boat! That's great! And the, toy, the owner of the toy store says... That's my boat. I just bought that boat. A man came in with that boat and I bought that from him and, and it's on sale for this much and the boy is overwhelmed because that's his boat. But he has to save his money up and eventually he has enough and he goes back in and he redeems. He buys it back. That's what God does with us through Jesus. He bought you back. From sin, from death, from separation, for all eternity from God. He buys you back. Now, for many of us, that's the good news. Right? Man, is that great news. Listen to me. There's another piece of the puzzle in the gospel that's even better. It's the second part, verse 5. What does he say? And you, he does that so that you can experience the adoption of sons. Think through adoption for a moment. Think about what adoption means. Think about how you describe it. You are now part of a family when you weren't before. Adoption is one of the most beautiful gospel acts that you and I can do. Adoption pictures what God does with you and me. He takes us 
And he adds us to his family. Why? We deserve it. No, we don't deserve it. We've done something to merit it. No, we haven't. It's just because he's good. That's it. But think about all that adoption is. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, he states this. He describes it this way. Adoption is a family idea. It's conceived in terms of love. It views God as a father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and his fellowship. And he establishes us as his children and his heirs. Closeness. Affection, generosity are all at the heart of this relationship with God that we enjoy because of the adoption that we have through Jesus. To be right with God, the judge, is an amazing thing. It truly is. Justification is a glorious truth. But listen to me. Adoption may be better. Because you're not just declared right with this God You are loved and cared for by him like a father. And how much greater is that? Right? This is the magnificent truth of adoption. He goes on. He goes on in verse 6 and he continues this idea. And because you are sons now, God sent His spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, many times we read that verse, what we focus on is the end. Abba, Father. Some of you have heard the the Abba, Father. This is described as, you know, this is like a child saying, Daddy. Um, Some of these interpretive things that get said and passed down through time. I, I would be fascinated to find where, where did they originate? Like, where, who was the first one who threw that out? And then how did it develop from there? Because, man, I, I've heard that from 40 people. And I must confess to you, the significance of verse 6 is not you saying daddy to God. That's, that's not the significance. The significance is about, again, the union of the Spirit and the Son and your union with them, their work in you, which produces this relational, I can say Abba Father, right? That, that's what's a big deal here, all right? So look again at the middle of that verse. He says, so God sent the spirit of his son. Look at the distinction there. This is a very unique phrase Throughout our New Testament. For the Spirit of God to be called the Spirit of the Son. And what I want you to observe in that connection. Is the link between the work of the Son. And the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Think about that for a minute. Those are not opposing ideas. So when you are, verse 27, clothed with Christ, and then you have the Spirit of the Son, these are ideas that are in parallel. They're working together. This is God's work accomplished in you through Jesus. And what does that produce? It produces this statement of worship. Father. Right? That's the idea. Abba is not quite equivalent to our English term daddy. It actually isn't. But it does communicate a sense of intimacy, a sense of warmth, a sense of trust, a sense of affection, which causes what in us? This cry 
of worship, this cry of praise, declaring the worth of our God. I can trust him because I know that he cares about me. I can rest in him because I know he's present with me. There is this closeness and intimacy that we enjoy. Why? How? Through the spirit of the son at work in us, enabling us to respond with praise. Right? And then he concludes verse 7, this section. He says, so, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then God has made you an heir. You are a child of God because of Jesus. And if you are, you're an heir. And everything we have now is just a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of all that will be ours one day. But the greatest gift to us is not eternal life. The greatest gift to us is Jesus. It is God. It is a right relationship. That's the gift. And if that's the gift, then certainly living with him for all eternity, what a gift that would be, right? He himself is the gift. This is the emphasis throughout. As human beings, we didn't do anything to deserve this. We can't. This is the work of God. So we are all children of God by faith, and we are all one in Christ Together, there's this link that we have because of Christ, this oneness. And it is only because of and through him. D.C. Stover was an inventor. He was a businessman who lived many, many, many years ago, a hundred or more years ago in Freeport, Illinois. And he died there January 17th of 1908 from complications from a severe heart condition, according to the Freeport Weekly Standard. Stover had two children, but despite being the wealthiest man in Freeport, his two children never saw any inheritance from their father's fortune. Fifty-nine years later, after his death, the third-generation heirs of D.C. Stover of Freeport finally received a payout from his fortune. They all received check securities which totaled $2 million. Stover's strange will plus years of litigation prevented them from getting it. Think that through for a minute. 59 years later. 1967? Right? Two world wars have happened. No inheritance. Folks, this is the earthly inheritance. You may think you're getting one. You may hope you are. You're not guaranteed a penny. None of us. Not one of us. But you know what we are guaranteed in Jesus? An inheritance so rich, so beyond imagination, so unthinkable, that when we begin to understand it a little bit, all we can do is cry out in worship to God because of who he is and what he's done for us as his children, as heirs. Man, what a gift. What an inheritance.